Well, yesterday uh, morning while I was making coffee, our three-year-old granddaughter Zoe was helping Mimi, Wendy, my wife, or Mimi, uh, clear the breakfast table. And uh, Zoe said, like only a three-year-old can, it's good to help. And then she turned to me and said, Papa, I'm helping Mimi. And uh, Mimi said, you know, yes, Zoe, helping always makes things go better. And uh, I thought about that story because I'd been thinking about Nehemiah chapter 3 all week. And Nehemiah chapter 3 is a tough chapter. It's uh, filled with names and details, and it's kind of like the begat section of Genesis. You know, you go, what do you do with this chapter? Uh, but I feel like there's some principles that we can draw uh, from this uh, chapter as we get into it here in a moment. So if you want to be turning in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 3, I want to introduce this topic by playing a short uh, video. It's a Basically, it's a commercial, I think it's like a public service uh, commercial encouraging people to take public transportation. Uh, but anyway, it, I think it has some relevance to uh, the teamwork that we see here in uh, Nehemiah's account. Take the bus. I love it. Doing God's work God's way. You know, our, our washing machine broke uh, last week, and uh, before calling an expensive repair technician, Wendy had the brilliant idea. All of her ideas are brilliant. She did the same thing with our refrigerator recently, saved us a couple thousand dollars, actually. She said, let me check YouTube and see if I can find anything out there about this exact model with this same problem, and if there's any way to kind of do it yourself. And fix it. Sure enough, she found one of those how-to videos. She ordered the part uh, from Amazon, and, and then she uh, tasked our college son, Landry, who's home for the summer. Uh, it, she said, hey, if I send you this video and give you this part, will you? if I pay you $50, will you fix our uh, washing machine? And he, of course, said, yeah, be glad to. Then he thought about it for a second, and he goes, wait a minute. What was it going to cost you if you had to call a repairman? You know, he was thinking he might have spoken too quickly. He wanted to renegotiate, you know, but he'd already signed on the dotted line. But, you know, if, as I think about Nehemiah chapter 3, if, if YouTube had existed in the 5th century B.C., I think chapter 3 would have been a how-to video on how to accomplish a big project, how to get it organized, how to get it done rapidly and right. It's basically a, a blueprint for doing things God's way. Now, it contains a lot of names and a lot of details, a lot of tasks. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, 
but I do want to highlight a few key principles to keep in mind as we talk about how to get a major project done rapidly and right. And uh, Nehemiah, as you know, is taking place here in the 5th century B.C., the year is 445 B.C. He had heard a report from his brother and some other people in Jerusalem that the, the walls were in disrepair, the city was still completely dilapidated, they needed to shore it up, and he prayed about it. He immediately went to the Lord in prayer, and then he he went before the king, King Artaxerxes. He got permission, as we talked about last time in chapter 2. And now he comes to uh, the city, as we looked at. He, he travels around. He observed it. He kind of made some notes. And then he sets out to start this building project, which, as we are going to be looking at in the weeks to come, ended up taking 52 days. In 52 days, they were able to build uh, the walls around the city. And this chapter 3 here gives a lot of names because... God and His sovereignty and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wanted to honor those people who, by participating in this building project, had uh, you know helped reestablish Israel in the Promised Land. They they deserved you know honorable mention because according to God's will and God's purpose, Israel was now returning uh, to the Promised Land. So uh, Nehemiah describes the reconstruction of the walls, starting with the sheep gate in the northeast corner. And then he moves counterclockwise and talks about what's happening as they build these various gates and towers. And it's interesting, the first thing that jumped off the page at me is right there in chapter 1, uh, I mean right there in verse 1 of this chapter where he says, consecrate. He uses that word consecrate. It's a verb in Hebrew. He uses it twice. Uh, he's, look at what he says. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, and then as far as the Tower of Hananel. The verb consecrate is, is a verb in Hebrew, kadesh. It means to dedicate. Uh, it's often translated to make holy. It's used 171 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, but it's often translated to make holy. It means to dedicate or to set apart or to remove from common use. The book of Leviticus has many uh, Jewish regulations and laws that relate to dedicating houses, to dedicating crops, dedicating your fields to the Lord, um, uh, dedicating animals to the Lord. And so the first kind of key principle here when you're taking on a project or a task of some kind is consecrate it to the Lord consecrate your work to the Lord. So I want to start by asking you this question. How often do you take the time to give your work to the Lord, to consecrate it? In other words, to it's not just a everyday common thing, but to say, I want to set this apart for the Lord. You know, what, what do you consecrate to the Lord? A lot of times, uh, if you grew up in a Christian home, you might have participated in a parent-child dedication where you're consecrating yourselves as parents and this child to the Lord to raise him or her up in the Lord. Uh, you might consecrate your home. You've bought a new home or built a new home. Do you take the time to pray over that home and to say, Lord, this is your home. This isn't just any ordinary home, but we want this to be dedicated to your service. Do you start each day consecrating the day to the Lord? You know, I think that's what the idea here is of Kadesh. It's to set it apart as not something that's just common and routine. You know, you, you, know, you, you go through the day, and you, there are some things that just 
you just do. You get up, you brush your teeth, you know, you get dressed, you take a shower, all, all that kind of stuff. I don't think you have to just stop every 30 seconds and dedicate the next thing you're going to do to the Lord. But clearly, this concept of consecration is something that I think 2,000 years into the church age, we've kind of pushed to the bottom of our priority list. We don't think about it much anymore. Do you consecrate your job to the Lord? You know, whatever your job is, do you think, Lord, I want this to be for you. I want you to get the glory from this. I want this to be special, to be unique, to be set apart. I'm a child of God. I want my work, whatever it is, to be consecrated uh, to you. Um, you know, when, when we were kids, when, whenever my family would take a trip, my father would always pray at the beginning of the trip in the car before we would head out on an overnight trip or a vacation trip or something like that. I've continued that practice with my family. We've spent most of our life on the road with our ministry, and so anytime we get in the car, we always pray together, pray for safety, pray for safe travel, and so forth. Consecration. That's the idea here. And so I got to thinking about uh, this idea, and the New Testament has a lot to say about sanctification and, and dedication in that sense, setting things apart. Of course, as I said, you know, everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of the Lord. But there are certain times when you consecrate things or should. When's the last time you stopped and consecrated something to the Lord? Paul says, whether we're eating or drinking, it's all for the glory of God. He said the same thing to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. But we also see passages like 1 Peter 3, where we're told to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, to set Him apart. And in this context, it's, it's in an apologetic sense of being ready to give a defense. That's where we get the word apologia, apolo apologetics, to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. But you know, it's not just in an evangelistic setting. When's the last time you had to have a conversation that you knew you were going to have to have that made you a little nervous. You're a little bit stressed about it. Um, did you stop and pray? Did you dedicate that conversation to the Lord? Did you say, Lord, I want to set this apart for your sake right now. I want this to be something, uh, you know, that, that you can use. Uh, consecration is really a lost art. Uh, we've become such a busy, busy, fast-paced society. You know, we just go through the motions. We, we do the next thing, check the next thing off of our list. We understand the concept of prayer. We understand that we're to pray without ceasing, that we're to have an attitude of prayer. And I think most believers do a, a pretty good job of that. But there are certain components of prayer uh, that we don't often think about, you know, Prayer, of course, involves intercession for others. It involves petition for yourself, thanksgiving to the Lord, uh, you know, thanking Him for His answers to prayer, uh, those kinds of things. But there's a specialized form of prayer, which is consecration, which is basically saying, Lord, we're about to do something. We're about to say something. We're about to engage in a project or a task of something, and we want this to be set apart for your use. I want to encourage you to think about that more in the weeks to come. That was my takeaway, at least from this first uh, section. So four things we're going to look at here on, uh, you know, how to, how to get a job done God's way. And the first one is to consecrate your work to the Lord. The second one, this one's much easier to see as we go through this chapter, is to collaborate with other believers. We have a shared purpose 
And what's interesting as you read through this, you see that Nehemiah assigned everyone a specific place to work. They had a, a job to do and a specific place to do it. In fact, the phrase next to in the New King James occurs 17 times in this chapter. Let's just look at a few examples. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built, and next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshelam, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also, next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to, next to, next to. We even see commuters that didn't live in and around this city were given specific places and had a specific uh, part. Men whose homes were outside of Jerusalem in places like Jericho, verse 2, uh, Tekoa, verse 5 and 27, uh, a city called Gibeon, in verse 7, Mizpah. Uh, those people from those cities were assigned sections of the wall to work on where there were few homes. Makes sense, right? Because we're going to see in a moment that people were tasked with working on the walls that were closest to their home. But if you didn't have a home in the city, someone had to do those walls uh, where there were no homes. Let's assign it to those people. Next to is what really caught my eye. Anytime the Bible repeats something, it should catch your attention. And to me, the takeaway is to collaborate with other believers. Who is working next to you as you do life? Or maybe to ask it in reverse, who are you working next to? Who's in this with you? And as you get ready to do God's work, God's way, whatever that task may be, we need to think about collaboration. Now, that's not easy uh, for some people, but the New Testament has a lot to say about the church age and the importance of working together. Paul said in Ephesians 4, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That word edifying means to build up. In other words, we're all in this together. Earlier in the same chapter, he put it this way, there is one body. This is the, the seven ones in this section, uh, symbol, symbolize, symbolizing completeness and so forth. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. We're in this together, and never is that more seen than with the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the body of Christ, the church, uh, in the New Testament. Now, if you're like me, uh, it's easy to isolate yourself. Some people like to do things alone. When I'm facing a task, just complete transparency, I would just as soon do it myself if I possibly can. A lot of reasons for that, uh, and a lot of reasons not to do that biblically. But just from experience, you know, people let you down. You know, you've got to explain things to them. If you can do it yourself, it's just easier to do it yourself. I know as we've been uh, working with uh, all, all this flooding that we've had uh, and, you know, picking up these 16-gallon wetbacks full of water, dumping hundreds of them over, over a little more than a week in the three different phases of the flooding that we experienced into these big garbage cans that we could then pump the water from there out away from the house, uh, you know, you can't 
pick up a 16-gallon shop vac full of water. You know, a gallon weighs eight pounds, right? A gallon of milk, eight pounds, right? Uh, 16 times eight. Now, I was public schooled, so give me a minute. Um, 80 and 48, 128, 128 pounds, right? So that's a lot. Now, there's probably some guys out there that could do it, just deadlift, right? I'm not one of them. So as we had all of our family and the kids working together around the clock in some cases, you know, or late into the night and then the next morning start early because it was all flooded again, trying to get that water out of there, we would do it together. One person on one side, one on the other, lift it up carefully, trying not to slosh it out, pour it into the garbage can, and then turn the pump on and it would pump it out. Some things you need to, you need help doing. You need to collaborate with other believers. Proverbs reminds us that to isolate yourself is raging against all sound judgment or wise judgment. Uh, we have a tendency to want to do that, but life was not intended to live in a vacuum. And in an amazing way, an amazing example of collaboration, uh, Nehemiah was able to get everybody together in the whole city to work and do their part, and consequently they finished the project in 52 days. You go through the New Testament epistles and you find this concept of collaboration again and again with the one another passages. For example, in Hebrews 10, it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. See, we're not supposed to be on another. I know it's, it's easy to, to think in those terms these days. This world is spiraling out of control. The trajectory is not good. And you might want to just go to a cave and hide out or live on a mountaintop or dig a hole and climb in it. But that's not God's divine design. And we see that illustrated beautifully in the story of of Nehemiah and his kinsmen there in Jerusalem. But this passage goes on to say, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. This is a passage that became very real for a lot of Christians in America when the pandemic hit. Because, of course, the government was telling you, don't go to church. You can't go to church. We'll fine you if you go to church. We'll arrest you. And they did in some cases, and even in America, certainly in other countries like Canada and New Zealand, arrest people for gathering for worship. Uh, everybody pretty much in the first couple of weeks while the, the in the fog of war, so to speak, what, we weren't sure what was going on with this crazy pandemic complied. But then thank, uh, uh, thankfully, a few courageous Bible-believing Christians that weren't afraid to stand up for what's right said, we don't care what the government says. We're not beholden to the government. And if you think we are, you don't understand Romans 13. I encourage you to go back and read my teaching on that and many others. Um, but a few people said, you know what, we're, God's word says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. His commands come first. We're going to worship. And there was a small remnant that did. But God put this in here for a reason, that we need each other. Uh, we need to exhort one another. Uh, and, and so much the more, by the way, as you see the day approaching. And that day, the, the judgment of Jerusalem was coming uh, in 70 A.D. This was roughly 67 A.D. But uh, Whatever's on the horizon, and certainly now the stage is being set for incredible things as the return of the Lord draws near, I believe. Uh, we need each other now more than ever to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, what's interesting about this is as we get closer and closer to the Lord's return, things are not as simple as they might have been in a different day. Uh, these days, it's harder and harder to find a Bible-believing church that is like-minded, that it believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, that is preaching a clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message, that's talking about prophetic events and preaching Bible prophecy the way the Bible does. Uh, 
And so I get emails all the time at Not By Works and phone calls from people saying, I live in such and such a place. Uh, I just can't find a church. Can you, do you know of any good churches like-minded in this area? And in some cases, there just aren't any, you know. Now, I get calls sometimes from people asking about that. They're just, you know, sort of the woe is me, Elijah, I alone and left. And I go, well, where do you live? And they go, uh, Houston. I go, well, I'm pretty sure in Houston. I understand apostasy. I understand the churches. But I bet you there's at least one other church in Houston that believes the Bible. So you maybe need to look a little harder. But, you know, if you live in a rural area and there's very few churches to begin with and most of them are woke and have abandoned the scriptures, what do you do? So I'm not legalistic about this by any stretch. Uh, I think it's between a person and the Lord, but we have many people that consider Plum Creek their church home from across the country uh, that have never been here because wherever they are, they just don't have a church that they can that they can consider biblical and, and, and share life with. And so uh, this is a strange time. I get it. In an ideal world, you want to come together in person, face-to-face like we're doing here today, and you want to bear one another's burdens and exhort one another and stir up uh, each other to love and good works and so forth. But uh, the point is collaboration is a key part of getting anything done the way God wants it done. So you see these one another passages throughout uh, Scripture. Paul says, for example, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. He says, through love serve one another. He told the Thessalonian believers in the context of the end times and Bible prophecy, he says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are also doing. It's even more important the times in which we live when the stage is being set, you know, every day with more and more things happening to prepare the way for the Antichrist and the one world system that is to come, that we comfort each other and edify one another. So resist the urge to be a lone ranger collaborate with one another. So consecrate your work to the Lord. That's something we've not thought about. Probably I hadn't for a while. Take the time to consecrate even the little things. You know, hey, I'm going to consecrate my day to the Lord today. And then collaborate with other believers. Uh, And then, and this one's very easy to see, the third principle that I draw from this passage is to contribute according to your unique gifts and abilities. Contribute according to your unique gifts and abilities. So we saw a unity of purpose in collaboration, but we see a diversity of ability and talent and giftedness uh, as well in this chapter. Uh, And by the way, I I learned this week, or someone pointed out this week, and I thought it was a profound observation in a meeting I was in, that aptitude is not the same thing as giftedness. And, you know, we might have an aptitude at something and an ability to do something, but it may not be our highest and best use. You know, our gifts uh, are even some things that we're especially gifted at doing. And so much of our time is spent doing things we can do and not doing what we're best at. So think about that as you prioritize your day. But clearly in this chapter, we see people contributing according to their unique gifts and abilities. Back to verse 1, Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. So, you know, the, the sheep gate was of particular interest to the priests. Why? Because that's where the animals were brought in through that gate for the sacrifices in the temple. So it made sense for them to take on that particular task. We, we see other workers throughout this chapter with various vocations that 
did things according to their vocation. That's why Nehemiah lists their vocation. It wasn't just a, there's nothing insignificant. Every jot and tittle of God's word is significant. So you had the perfume makers, the district rulers, the Levites, the merchants. Verse 12 talks about how one man had daughters that were involved, right? So everybody contributed according to their unique gifts and abilities. And it reminds me of a, a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 12. You know, Paul's first letter uh, to the Corinthians that he wrote on his third missionary journey back to Corinth, uh, chapters 12 to 14 are all about uh, how to do church relative to the unique gifts of the Holy Spirit that we have. And chapter 12 uh, is fascinating. It starts out in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, and but all the members of that one body being many are one, so also is Christ. And we are, in fact, one body, but we're all unique, thankfully, right? The last thing the, the church needs is 100 JBs or 100 Garys. That would have been a better illustration. You will own it. Yeah, amen. Me too, brother. Uh, I mean, it might, what if it had 50 Garys and 50 JBs? Would we be okay then? Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, all right. So I want to read this uh this chapter, I'm not going to put it on the screen because I just want you to listen to this extended metaphor that Paul gives. If you have your Bibles, you can uh, follow along. By the way, we have Bibles in the back of the seats and as well as in the lobby. Feel free to pick one up, and they're our gift to you if you need a Bible or know someone who does. But he, remember, he said, "For as the body is one and as many members, so you know, but all the members of the one body being many are one body. So also is Christ." And listen to what he says, beginning in verse 13. For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, let me pause there for a second. What in the world is he talking about there? Well, remember, baptism is an ancient rite that predates Christianity by a couple thousand years that's been used in a variety of cultures and geographical locations. It's just a symbol that means identifies. Baptism always identifies you with something. So Moses' baptism in the wilderness identified the children of Israel with his message. John the Baptist's baptism identified people in the first century with his message. Um, water baptism, by the way, we have a new baptistry uh, up here, uh, and we are taking names now for our next baptism service. If you're interested in being baptized, uh, let us know. Uh, we'd love to have you participate in that. We have one coming up in August that's going to be at our church picnic at the Vandewalkers' home in their pool. Is your pool heated, by the way? It is. Praise God. So... I don't really care about the people I'm baptizing. I'm only thinking of myself. Uh, but, uh, so, but water baptism identifies you with other believers. Water baptism is, comes after salvation. It does not, it's not a requirement to get into heaven. It does not save you. It's an outward expression of an inward experience. It's a first step of obedience. If you've never been baptized, it's not going to keep you out of heaven. There's only one way to get to heaven. That's trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But it is important, and it identifies you with others. It's a way of saying, hey, I've trusted Christ too. Now I'm part of the family, right? But Holy Spirit baptism that Paul mentions here identifies every individual believer with Christ Himself. The moment you trust Christ, at that instant, you are identified with Christ. Paul calls it being in Christ. You are now part of the body of Christ. And by the way, nothing can ever change that. Ephesians says you're sealed in that moment by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. 
one of many proof texts for the fact that you can't lose your salvation. If you're a Christian today, you'll be a Christian tomorrow. You get eternal life the moment you trust in Christ, not when you die. See, if you got eternal life when you died, you'd spend your whole life wondering, oh, am I going to get there or not? I guess I'll have to wait till I die to find out. But eternal life is a present possession. Jesus said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And the reason he can say that is because at the moment faith meets the gospel, the moment you've trusted Christ, you are born again spiritually. You become your spiritual DNA changes. You become part of the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit does that in that instant. You're identified with Christ. So all of us, if you know the Lord, have been baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink of one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Now listen to this interesting analogy. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? So he's talking about the body of Christ. We're all one in Christ, but yet we're all individuals. And he's using the physical body as a metaphor. Now, preachers and pastors and people in ministry, when we have these pastors meetings and we, where we like to talk about all of our church members, we talk about a few other parts of the body that would probably be a better metaphor for some church members, but that's, that's a discussion uh, for another day. But he says, now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't have any need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given it greater honor, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. I think it's a fascinating analogy. If you think about the, the physical body, I mean, there are parts of your body that you probably don't ever really think much about. I mean, when's the last time you thought about your earlobe or you thought about your little toe? But I guarantee if you drop a brick on that little toe, you're going to remember it's there. Or if you take a staple and staple it in your earlobe, you'd, you'd, you'd get your attention, right? And the same thing is true of the body of Christ, the church, this, this idea of we each bring something unique to the table. He goes on to say, if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, yet members individually. What are you doing to contribute to the project, the task, whatever it is, according to your unique gifts and abilities? Peter puts it this way. The end of all things is at hand. Again, note the eschatological context there. Uh, this, is, this is the last days. Uh, this is the last age before the kingdom age. I understand it's been 2,000 years of, of church age. So that seems like a long time. But if you look at a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages, 6,000 years, this is the final age prior to the, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. This is, in fact, the last days. That's why 
Paul calls it the last days in Scripture. Uh, Peter's referencing the same thing. So what should we do in light of this? Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. There's that one another again. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another, again, without grumbling. But notice, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think many times we squander the gifts that God has given to us when we could really be helping edify the body, build up the body working together. And that's especially true when it comes to doing a particular task God's way, you know, the, the proper way. Um, so consecrate your work to the Lord. Collaborate with other believers. Um, contribute according to your own unique gifts. And then the last thing that I saw from this unique chapter is something, again, that we might not think about very often, but consider how this work, this project that we're working on together, whatever that may be, is going to benefit you personally. You know, we, we tend to forget that there is an appropriate kind of pride, you know, I'm not talking about the narcissistic, egotistical pride that just only thinks about me. I'm talking about, you know, a, a healthy pride of, of looking over a job well done and going, wow, that, that makes me feel good. I'm pleased with, with how that came out, you know. And often it's not something you share with others. Uh, it's just, you know, you know, like when you're weeding the flower beds or working on the, the, the landscaping or mowing your lawn and you know you're all done you've cleaned off the mower you parked it back in the garage and you kind of walk out if you're like me you know a guy and you just you want to just kind of look it over and go yeah that's pretty good or you might see a little spot you miss and so you go over there and you pluck a few blades of grass that the blade missed and you're like you know yeah I, I, I'm I can take pride that I worked hard I did things well and I got it done and there's a certain aspect of this that we see alluded to in this project to rebuild the walls. I mentioned that assignments were made near people's houses. Now, there are several obvious reasons for this, one in particular. But, for example, we see, let me just give you an example here in verse 23. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house, front of their house, the wall. And after them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, Messiah, uh, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by his house, and so forth. So it might seem pretty obvious, but obviously people were assigned to the sections of the walls closest to their house because they would be more personally involved. They would take more personal ownership in it and therefore be more motivated. You know, in that day, in the ancient Near East, city walls were vital. I mean, they didn't have air defenses and satellite systems. They didn't even have radar. They didn't have planes. They didn't have ways to kind of see if an enemy is coming. They didn't have vast spy networks and, you know, places like Pine Gap in Alice Springs, Australia, and other, you know, key fusion centers around the world where they're listening to everything we're saying, and they can tell when an enemy is about to come. They didn't have that. So the walls were their defense. And by the way, in this present age of nationalism, I've talked previously in some of my messages about God's divine design started with globalism in the garden. After uh, the Table of Nations in chapter 10, it shifted to nationalism. 
And that's the era in which we're still living to this day. God's divine design is nationalism. The Satanists are wanting to bring in globalism, ultimately under the head of the Antichrist and false prophet. But, you know, God's design is nationalism. You ought to fight for national sovereignty until you go to be with the Lord or Jesus comes back, one or the other. But the Bible is going to come full circle, the way it started, to globalism again when the King of kings and Lord of lords sits on the throne and rules in a one-world government of peace, righteousness, and justice. But for now, it's national sovereignty. And so walls are important. They were very important back then. They're still important today, boundaries. Uh, in fact, that's the reason the globalists are trying to get rid of all the boundaries, right? They don't want to build walls. They want to make it easy to transition into a one-world system. So obviously, people by being assigned to the sections in front of their house, they had a more vested interest in that. Secondly, they wouldn't have to travel to another part of the city to do the job, which would be a valuable waste of time, a waste of valuable time, right? I mean, just think about it. If, if you got up every morning early, you gathered your supplies, and you headed off to your designated spot to work, and if you're going 20 miles this way or however far, and someone's going 10 miles, and everybody's crisscrossing, and it takes an hour to get there, and then you start, why not be more efficient? You just step right outside and, and you're working on this section of the wall with your neighbors. Another reason that this plan was put in place, I think, is that in the event of an attack, and we're going to start looking at the attacks that they faced, I think, next week, uh, certainly there were no shortage of enemies that came against them. You know, they would not be tempted to flee because they had a vested interest in protecting their families and their belongings and their young children that were back at the house, right? Makes perfect sense. So they, they knew that this task that they were a part of would benefit them uh, uh, personally. And not only that, but they could rely on some of the younger kids to do some of the tasks because they were right there. So they could utilize everybody's available talents. Uh, I know when I'm working on a project and, you know, I've, let's say I've got to screw something together and it's got five or six screws you know, I can remember in, when the kids were younger, I'd say, hey, can you help Dad do this project? And they'd hold the screws, and I'd screw one in with my drill, and then I'd, okay, I'm ready for the next one. Especially if you're on a ladder or you're under a sink, and, you're, you know, it's just easier. You just hold your hand out, hand me the next screw, right? Well, that, you know, child is not an expert builder or not, you know, going to be a project manager, but they can do their part. So there was a reason that they, you know, were assigned to work on the areas in front of their house, and, and I think it's perfectly legitimate for us today to consider how what we're doing might benefit us personally, in addition to God's work, whatever that may be, and to take pride in that. Uh, you know, in the Song of Ascents, one of these Psalms of Ascents, the psalmist writes, when you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy. There's nothing quite like a job well done and, and, and taking, again, that good, the healthy pride in what you've, uh, what you've done. Uh, Solomon put it this way, uh, here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life. I mean, it's okay to enjoy labor and to do things for reasons that have personal benefit. Proverbs says, in all labor there is profit. And this is an interesting verse that's often overlooked in Paul's writings. He said, but let each one examine his own work, personal work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, not in another. For Each one shall bear his own load. In other words, there's a time to just kind of look over what you've done and rejoice in that. And so I think 
you know, the fourth principle that, that, you know, came to my mind as I looked through this is to consider how this work will benefit you personally. Nothing wrong with that at all. So just to review, doing God's work God's way, we said consecrate your work to the Lord. It's the last time you did that or consecrated anything to the Lord. Second, collaborate with other believers. We're not in this alone. Number three, contribute to the task, whatever it may be, according to your unique gifts and abilities. What do you have that God can use you in a particular way to do? And fourth, consider how this work is going to benefit you personally. So the takeaway is, is pretty simple. Are you serving the Lord the right way? See, these are just some reminders of how in a in bygone era, God's people did some things and it might behoove us to think about. You know, we get up every day, you know, we set out to serve the Lord, hopefully. We're trying to live by the Spirit and not after the flesh. But there's a way to do God's work in a particularly expeditious manner, and I hope that encourages you uh, this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for uh, just this unique passage that uh, has a lot of details, a lot of names, a lot of things that people might just skip right over. But, Lord, all Scripture is profitable. And everything is in there for a reason. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring to our remembrance these uh, principles that we've talked about today at just the right time and in just the right, right way in the days and weeks to come. Lord, we thank you for this time together today. We pray your blessings now as we depart in Jesus' name.